Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. Thanks for joining us. My name is Stan Schwartz. I'm an infectious diseases physician with decades of experience in healthcare as a student, a teacher, a fellow, a researcher, a practicing physician in both solo and group practices, a health system executive, and now a healthcare entrepreneur, and as I get older, as a patient. I want to share my 360-degree view of healthcare with you. My thanks to Zero Studios for support of this podcast. Let's welcome our guest, Justin Hunt, MD, a psychiatrist who works with Oak Street Health. Justin, can you introduce yourself and give us a 50,000-foot view of what Oak Street Health actually does and what benefits it brings to senior care that can be translated to non-senior care? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here today. Um, I'm Justin Hunt. I'm currently the medical director for behavioral health at um, Oak Street Health. And um, Oak Street Health is actually a network of value-based primary care centers for adults on Medicare. Um, And we are quite large nowadays. We're we currently operate approximately 125 centers across 20 um, states, and our centers are really strategically placed in communities where access to high-quality primary care is, is lacking. And, and that factors into our overarching mission, which is to rebuild healthcare as it should be, with a specific focus on health equity, as well as um, being very intentional with closing health disparities. Um, and our, our value-based model of care means that we really focus on the quality of care rather than the, the volume of service services as is traditional in the, um, in the typical fee-for-service model. And we assume the full financial risk of our patients as well. And to um, be good stewards of the dollars that we get on the front end, we deliver personalized preventative care. And our model was specifically designed to meet the needs of older adults who face um, chronic illnesses. And as we will concentrate on today, I assume um, our integrated model incorporates other things such as behavioral health care, addressing the social determinants um, of health. And all these things are easily accessible through um, in-center and home and telehealth appointments as well as a 24-7 patient support line as well. And, you know, most importantly, um, thinking about the model from kind of a 30,000-foot view, um, it, it's working. We've driven approximately a 51% reduction in patient mm. hospital admissions, uh, 42% reduction in 30-day readmission rates, and um, also a 51% reduction in emergency um, department visits. And as a psychiatrist, I would... I would hope that our integration of behavioral health is factored into those numbers as well. Wow. I mean, that those results would be applicable to younger populations as well as older populations. So you've made behavioral health an integral part of your, your primary care model. And on a previous conversation, you mentioned that that was through the use of licensed clinical social workers. Two questions. What is behavioral health and how is it different from what we call mental health? and psychiatry or psychology? Oh, that's 
that's an excellent question. And the, the terminology can get confusing sometimes in the in the behavioral health world. You know, traditionally, um, behavioral health is inclusive of both the kind of traditional mental health diagnoses. So maybe the kind of the traditional DSM-5 psychiatric diagnoses that you think of, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, but it also includes um, perhaps the even more common substance use disorder diagnoses as well. So it's really kind of all-inclusive of both mental health as well as um, substance use. And as far as like, you know, how does psychiatry, psychology, all those different fields, how do they all kind of factor into it? Well, they, they are, they're really kind of the providers under the behavioral health umbrella. And they all, of course, can specialize in different things. Some psychologists, you know, PhDs um, like to focus uh, more on cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. Others might have more of an interest in motivational interviewing for substance use. Um, and so there are lots of different disciplines <laughs> under the behavioral health umbrella. And, and that too can be confusing too. Psychiatrists, of course, are the, the professionals that go to the med school and then do a residency in psychiatry. Um, psychologists tend to have a little bit more of a research background as they complete a PhD or a PsyD. And then as we have at um, O Street, we have master level therapists or LCSWs. So they often will get an MSW, but then they have to go through a licensing process um, with the, within each state to become an LCSW. Um, so yeah, and they traditionally provide both um, psychotherapy um, as well as care management too. So, I mean, most people in, in equate the word or the term social work with, you know, people who deal with disadvantaged populations or homeless or impoverished, but it sounds like it's a whole lot more than that. Yes, yes. And that, that you know, we even um, deal with that confusion inside of our company as well, because we actually have in each one of our Oak Street um, centers, um, once they become mature and reach a, a certain number of um, patients, we ideally would have both an MSW, which would be kind of a classic social worker addressing um, the social determinants of health and working on housing and food insecurity and perhaps transportation, things of that nature. Um, but then we would also have this other role, which at Oak Street we call a behavioral health specialist, which is the LCSW. And we really think of the LCSWs as being providers, um, uh, just, you know, just like we would think of the psychiatrist or primary care doc or um, primary care MP as being providers as well. They, they provide billable services um, that is you know, you know, traditionally evidence-based psychotherapy. So that that's kind of the main differentiator between just the MSW and LCSW is the actual provision of billable psychotherapy services. So let, let me ask you this. What percentage of your general patients wind up getting behavioral health services, and how is that different from what you expected going into the program? You know, we we are right around, and we're right around the average um, across the country. So traditionally, when you're going to go back to some older epidemiology studies of, of depression, uh, major depression in, in primary care, they, they usually estimate about you know, if you're doing kind of a point prevalence, 
uh, two to 4% in the general population, although some numbers recently have been higher, even getting closer to 7%. But in the primary care population, that jumps more into like the 10 to 15% range. And that's that's where we are at Oak Street, I would say, edging more toward the, the 15% range just because of the, um, the average complexity of our patient and the amount of medical comorbidity um, in addition to the behavioral health suffering too. How does the, I mean, you kind of specialize in taking care of chronic problems. I mean, are the chronic problems exacerbated by the mental health problems or are the mental health problems exacerbated by the multiple physical problems? You, I think that's a, that's an excellent question. And I, I think, um, you know, really just kind of more of a commonsensical answer is um, yes to both of those. <laughs> I think it's, it's a, it's a complex bidirectional relationship between uh, uh, medical diagnosis such as diabetes and the concurrent behavioral health diagnosis. We, we know that, you know, sometimes when sugar levels are not well controlled, that sometimes can drive downstream psychiatric symptoms. And then if you think about it in the flipped way, um, certainly um, depressive symptoms such as low energy, poor concentration, erratic sleep schedules, erratic appetites can have a very direct effect on the ability of someone with type 2 diabetes, for example, to, to manage their their blood sugar um, in the upstream determinants such as diet and exercise and things of that nature. So highly interwound <laughs> and, you, and you can do that relationship with a, a wide variety of different combinations between med surge diagnoses and psychiatric diagnoses. So when a patient, when you see a new patient, for example, do they get a mental health checkup along with a physical checkup? They do. You know, we've actually built it into what we call at Oak Street, the rooming module that's um, often driven really by our medical assistant on the front end as a, as a patient um, comes in. So we, we do an annual, um, what we call PHQ-2 screening. And then if the patient scores three or above on the PHQ-2, then the full PHQ-9 um, is then gathered. And PHQ-9 is a, is a classic um, scale um, to measure uh, major depressive symptoms. So for example, if you give a, get a score of 10 or above, then that is actually will generate an auto referral to the behavioral health team and that indicates moderate depression, basically. Can you tell the listeners, I mean, what is a PHQ-2? Is it like a is it a something the doctor holds in his hand or what? Well, it can, it can be fielded in a, in a lot of a lot of different ways. Um, ours is built more into our EMR um, computer system, and that drives the um, MA questioning. Um, it, and you know, nowadays with the the many apps that are popping up in behavioral health that that often target employers. Um, they also can, can be fielded via, via an app where a, a patient might get a text message saying that they, um, that the app wants to check in on their longitudinal mental health status. And then they would go in and, and fill out the questionnaire, which is, is nine questions. And it, it really is largely based on the classic symptoms of major depression as, as listed in the um, DSM-5, which is you know, kind of the, the Bible of psychiatry, so to speak. Um, so, it, you know, it gets a concentration and appetite, sleep, um, suicidal thinking as well, which is one of the more um, 
acute <laughs> questions in the in the mix. So it's a it's a classic one. <laughs> and depression's do you, coming. Do you find that most most people answer them honestly? I do if they understand them. So I think there is um, definitely a health literacy piece to this to ensure that um, the patient understands the the question and what the the rating scale means as it's as it's delivered to the to the patient by the MA. And we, we've intentionally had to do some targeted training with our um, medical assistants to ensure that we're gathering valid <laughs> valid screening information on our on our patients. So when a patient scores above that magic three and you go to the second test, but they're not like, you know, suicidal. So at that point, does the LCSW, licensed clinical social workers, start doing therapy? And, and if so, where does the therapy happen? Yes, uh, excellent, um, excellent question. So it, it would generate, um, so there's multiple different ways that the patient can get over to the um, behavioral health team within that same Oak Street Health Center. If, as I mentioned earlier, if it's a score of 10 or above on the PHQ-9, there's going to be an auto-referral sent anyways to the behavioral health specialist, aka LCSW. But often the, the primary care um, physician or MP will will note the behavioral health suffering too, and they, they might trigger a referral on their own. And ideally, the way the model um, would, would best work, although it's not always possible, is to do a warm handoff between the primary care physician sitting with the, the patient to the behavioral health specialist who's present there in the brick and mortar center. That, that's really the best way to develop that initial treatment engagement that is so important for subsequent engagement in behavioral health care. So, you know, there's still so much stigma, particularly in certain geographic regions of the, of the country when it comes to mental health. So we want them to be as comfortable and as connected as possible on the front end. Now, in reality, it's not always possible for that LCSW to be available because they're they're providing one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy to, to many patients too. So while we, we really do encourage them to try to eject out of the room as, as much as possible, they, they have to kind of navigate that to ensure that they're not leaving the current therapy patient behind to go do that warm handoff. So that's kind of the art, <laughs> the art of integrated care. So how long, what's a typical behavioral health therapy session is it like 10 minutes 30 minutes 60 minutes it tends to be kind of long yeah kind of mm -hmm. more in the 45 to 50 minute side of things and um they would when that referral comes into them their initial appointment and maybe even going into the second one would be more of an initial assessment so gathering more validated scales on you know other symptom presentations so for example we have another scale called the GAD-7, which focuses specifically on generalized anxiety. We have another one called the PCL-5 that focuses more on PTSD and trauma. And in our populations at Oak Street, where we're often in pretty tough neighborhoods, the, the level of trauma is pretty um, significant at times. So they, they would gather all that and then ask all the you know, kind of traditional questions of a, of a psych psychiatric evaluation so you know past psychiatric history and social history what's the 
what's the family history as well, and of course the any concurrent substance use that be, could be um, complicated in the picture too. So really, with our LCSWs, that initial appointment is approximately an hour, and then they would set up a plan of short-term evidence-based psychotherapy from that point forward. And those subsequent appointments would be about 45 minutes. And then we really encourage our LLCSWs to use an evidence-based model. So for example, like cognitive behavioral therapy for depression or um, one for PTSD would be prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy for, for PTSD, for example. And, um, and usually those um, can be completed in, you know, around a 10 to 12 session course of, of psychotherapy. Um, and that's, that's certainly what we um, would ex expect our LCSWs to do. Sometimes it can be done a little, a little quicker, <laughs> depending on how fast they progress in their in their work but that's kind of of course so do you do you find or do you have evidence that that having behavioral health either reduces the amount of drugs prescribed for psychiatric or for mental health conditions and do they get better results than i mean why not just give why not just give an antidepressant ex other than rather than spending hours in psychotherapy? Right, right. Well, you, I would say the first thing is is um, one of the the core um, principles of our of our collaborative care model is is really being patient centric. So a, a fair number of patients come in with a, a level of um, behavioral health suffering, and they they really have no interest in a medication at all. So this um, approach, of course, meets them where they are. When you review the evidence, it kind of depends on what which diagnosis or kind of symptom cluster you're you're thinking about. But in general, psychotherapy is is very close to being equivalent with um, psychiatric medication management. And what the data traditionally shows in depression and anxiety is really a combination of both of them has the has the greatest effect. I, I would say in PTSD, it's it's a very close tie <laughs> between if you're truly providing a good evidence-based psychotherapy is is just as good as the the medication management we have for PTSD right now. Um, but I mean, isn't it at the end of the day more costly? It is um, not necessarily because the the providers um, that would be brought in to um, see a patient one on one um, from a psychiatry perspective would be um, much more costly than using the master level therapist. Um, now, in our model, is we we really have a mix of both. Um, so we we. Um, are implementing what's called the we often call it the, the capital C collaborative care model because it's a, not a not a real specific name for a model but it was a model that was developed um, largely up at the University of Washington and they still have a, a center that that supports its implementation of, across the country called the Ames Center and it's a model that really thinks about both um, it, it includes this LCSW. Um, professional in each one of the centers, but then you also have a team of what we call at Oak Street, our telepsych um, virtual team of care. So they're there to provide consultation back to the PCPs to support their prescribing of psychiatric meds. Um, they're there to support the behavioral health specialist as well and 
choosing kind of the right course of psychotherapy. And they're also there to see folks one-on-one and, and telepsych care if they're really complex and they need the specialty level of care. Are there examples where the behavioral health approach is clearly safer, more advantageous than psychopharmacology, AKA drugs? You know, yes, I, I think so. Because I mean, uh, you know, naturally, all, all medications <laughs> carry a, a risk benefit profile. So if someone you know, particularly is not interested at all in medications, and then they also present with more, you know, kind of milder symptomatology. So anxiety um, that, you know, is would almost be considered to be more in the, the realm of normal, so to speak, as, as opposed to being, you know, very pathological or leading to lots of impairment, then, and, you know, in that case, it really is ideal to, to stick with the, the psychotherapy and not introduce those potential risks and side effects of a, of a medication. You mentioned to me on a previous call, and, and it's, it's actually all coming together for me now because it sounds like these clinical social workers will develop a good relationship with a lot of patients, especially the most complex patient patients. But you mentioned to me that they also help with the management of your complex medical patients or help to overcome challenges for people to even get health care. And that's kind of a unique model. I know that, you know, some advanced primary carers have had care navigators, care guidance nurses, or whatever term you want to use, but you're kind of doing double duty here with your clinical social workers. You really do. You know, it really, the behavioral health specialist job or the LCSW role at Oak Street is a, it's a pretty tough job because of the, the level of um, multitasking that they must do. That they're, kind of a classic provider and that they're um, doing the one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy. But as, again, as part of this collaborative care model that we're implementing across the, the system of the 125 centers, another huge part of their job is the really kind of a care manager role. And it's, it's really facilitating this kind of population health approach to mental health care. So every time that person is referred to the behavioral health team, whether it's because of um, the PCP wanting it or because of that PHQ-9 score of 10 or above, they're automatically loaded into a population health registry that we own at, at Oak Street. And then really the behavioral health specialist is responsible for really tracking that registry. And in our actively managed patient population, they ideally would be checking in at least every two weeks, even if they're not seeing them for face-to-face -face psychotherapy every two weeks. They're at least checking in every two weeks to get that follow-up PHQ-9 for depression or the follow-up GAD-7 for anxiety so we can have a good kind of longitudinal um, treatment picture on, and, and then make decisions based on how they're progressing. And the BHS is really, or the LCSW is really the, the linchpin to making all that happen. Um, yeah, and, and then also they will often be the go-between between the PCP as well as the telepsych team who can make recommendations if they're not showing the progression that they should be showing. Do the LCSWs do any of the other traditional advanced primary care things like, you know, checking on people when they've gone to the ER or when they've gone home from the hospital? Yes, yes. So right now, and we would like to expand this um, 
approach in the, in the near future. Currently, our um, LCSWs will do transitions work from inpatient to outpatient on our patients who are specifically admitted to acute behavioral health units. Now, we know <laughs> we have a lot of our extreme health patients that, of course, are not necessarily being admitted to inpatient psychiatry, but they're being admitted for um, CHF exacerbations and all sorts of med surge reasons. And they also have that comorbid substance use disorder diagnosis or psychiatric diagnosis that's likely driving um, some of the admissions. So we're looking at our you know, current FTE of, of LCSWs across our system, and we would love to eventually get them connected into that transitions work from inpatient to outpatient, um, even with many mid-surge admissions with that behavioral health comorbidity. Tell, tell us how having the LCSW in the office is different from from what most docs do is they just simply refer to a, you know, a mental health center, a psychiatric hospital, a private practice group. They're, they're not shoulder to shoulder. Yeah. So I, mean, I think, I think this is where kind of the true value happens. And, it, and I would, I would like to emphasize that it's not only the fact that the LCSW is within the brick and mortar center, but I would also say that it's our application of this evidence-based collaborative care model that makes a huge difference too. So sometimes it's not quite enough to just drop <laughs> the LCSW in the center. Um, and then you always, they're in the same center and down the hall and you refer to them, but in many ways they might still fill up just as fast as that external LCSW might fill up. Now you might have, you know, naturally the communication would, would be better because they're right down the hall and they can do the warm handoffs and, and that action. But when you, when you apply the full capital C collaborative care model from University of Washington and all its principles, that's when you really start to kind of see the um, positive effects of really being able to spread the telepsychiatry expertise across a population of primary care patients. And you're applying that population health approach with the registry and you're being patient-centric. And then another key principle of the collaborative care model is really focusing on what we call measurement-based treatment to target. So something that, you know, medical internists are very used to when they treat the diabetes or, or hypertension. But in, in behavioral health, we have not had a grand tradition of, of a lot of measurement just because neuroscience is, is still uh, a rapidly developing field. There's still lots of unknown, but that doesn't excuse us <laughs> from not measuring things. So we do have this PHQ-9 for depression. We have that GAT-7 for anxiety. We should be doing that initial baseline and, and tracking it over time. And, and then of course, making treatment decisions based on that. So I presume that given that they're working shoulder to shoulder, they're doing that old fashioned thing that doesn't happen anymore, where the two providers actually talk to one another instead yeah. of reading, reading electronic medical records. Yes, yes, yeah, that does definitely happen with the um, LCSWs based in the Oak Street Health Centers, and it, it happens in a wide variety of different ways. We've already talked about the warm handoff, so that's kind of when the patient's in the room and the patient is handed off from PCP to, to the LCSW. But then we have other there are daily huddles within the centers as well, um, where they um, hone in on those um, 
what we at Oak Street often call VIP <laughs> patients, which are the very complex, um, often high utilizing um, patients uh, of external resources. And then there are also very intensive weekly huddles too when the BHS is, is brought in and usually kind of the whole team is there. So you'll have, you would have the MSW there, maybe more mm. focused on housing and food and security, but then the BHS could talk about those residual psychotic or depression symptoms that might be affecting diabetes management, for example. BHS, behavioral health specialist. Right. Yeah. AKA okay. LCSW. <laughs> yeah. Right. Sorry, I'm going back and so, forth. So... These folks are getting care even when they're not in their office in that situation, not in your office. Yes, yes. Um, yes, that's right. So there's still discussions happening and Oak Street's very much still in the place where we're trying to meet the patient where they are with um, comfort with care too. So they often will be seen in the center and we have a great kind of transportation system that can get them to their appointments at the Oak Street oh. Center. Um, but then we're also doing quite a few televideo visits still, or um, even phone visits as well during the public health emergency. And that, that really goes for both our LCSWs as well as our um, telepsych virtual team too. So as you discussed at the beginning, Oak Street is a, you know, a care model right now for seniors. What about what you've learned at Oak Street would inform employers as far as the need to look for primary care that embeds or at least offers behavioral health for, for their employer-sponsored health care members, especially, you know, people that are younger, which, you know, that's where you start to have drug abuse, alcohol problems, oh. and behavioral problems may actually be more intense than physical problems. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about like, what the burden is on that, mm -hmm. you know, for example, the 18 to 25 year old population um, behavioral health is really where it's at um, and many many college student counseling services across the, across the country who are just overwhelmed at this point can can certainly attest to that and then you know the prevalence is higher of depression in that range too so it's uh, you know approximately seven percent in the general population in that 18 to 25 which would be i guess gen z to millennial population, it's 11%. Wow. Uh, so it's very prevalent. Anxiety is even more prevalent than depression. It's um, 19%. It's almost one out of five. And then wow. of those folks who have anxiety, um, it's been said that approximately 56% of those folks are actually impa impaired by the anxiety. You know, anxiety, there's kind of a spectrum. <laughs> it can be, of course, healthy at times to have anxiety when you're running away from a, a danger. But um, it's in over half the cases, they, they feel like they're impaired by it from a functional perspective. So we're, we're, we're talking high prevalence um, in the, the young population. So if you were advising, and again, we're going to have behavior, uh, we're going to have benefit consultants and employers listening to this podcast. If you were advising an employer that was interested in doing some kind of employer-sponsored primary care, like direct primary care, you know, near-site or on-site, what would you tell them about what they need to have on their checklist for behavioral health to really get advanced care? Yeah, I mean, I there is 
great evidence to support this this current model that we're using at, at Oak Street. And um, even if you don't go with this kind of official <laughs> collaborative care model as defined um, by the University of Washington, their initial work, it, at least thinking about an integrated approach of some kind. So, you know, there's a there's a spectrum there. So, you know, sometimes primary care clinics are happy with just having that LCSW within the center, um, but they but they might not be applying this full collaborative care model with all the registry tracking and population health management and all the kind of other principles of the the collaborative care model. But it is just when it comes down to it, and I, I think most primary care physicians would would agree with. <laughs> The, the psychiatrist talking right now, it is, it's impossible to separate behavioral health from classic primary care because of all the things that we've talked about, the, the kind of bi-directional relationship between um, the medical conditions and the, and the psychiatric ones. And I, I think as we um, go through the next maybe 10 to, to 20 years, we're really going to have a, a much better understanding of you know what's truly behind these psychiatric disorders you know is it is it inflammation that is often driving depression or I mean, there's so many things that are just exploding in neuroscience right now that will i think if anything it will not separate behavioral health from um, classic primary care it will bring everything much closer together and i think i think neurology and psychiatry will come back together in a, a much more cohesive fashion than than we've been within the past 30 to 40 years too where you know it's, it's all brain based is the bottom line hey um that two more questions before we wrap up the first is you know for a patient that's not an emergency problem you know a suicide or something like that you know you're you're going to have kind of an almost instantaneous handoff if an employer were looking at direct primary care or any type of primary care, what's an acceptable referral time? I mean, should they say I want to see a week or four days or a month or because I know it could be a month or more in some practices? Oh, absolutely. I mean, gosh, what were you in some of our geographies? Sometimes it's three months to get in, particularly to a prescriber or, or a psychiatrist slash mm -hmm. um, psychiatric nurse practitioner. We, we really, I mean, that's, that's the reason we've implemented this collaborative care model approach. We, we really believe that it's best to take care of it right then, or at least within a few days, rather than kicking the can down the road for you know, even, even two to four weeks can be a very miserable period if you have a severe depression. And it's also dangerous too, because of potential for self-harm, not to mention all the maybe medical conditions that could be worsened by it um, as well. So that that's really, I would say, the the main driving force for the choice of this collaborative care model is having meaningful access on the on the front end. And and we're lucky at Oak Street um, because we have that upfront capitated funding in the value-based care model where we don't have to worry as much <laughs> about kind of fitting this model into the into a kind of a classic fee-for-service design. But I will say that many private insurers, and this is all initially driven by CMS, they've, they've developed codes for the collaborative care model um, where you can be reimbursed on a fee-for-service basis for, for doing this um, innovative integrated behavioral health work. 
Yeah, and I imagine, you know, it's the shortage of funds is maybe a less of a problem than shortage of providers. Yes, Hey, I've got yes. one last very timely question for you, Justin, and that is, what are you seeing in terms of behavioral health uh, uh, as far as post-COVID or long COVID, which, by the way, there was just a publication showing inflammatory markers in the central spinal, in the cerebrospinal fluid surrounding the brain in people with long COVID. Have you guys been dealing with that very much? Yes, you know, we, um, I would, you know, I think what's, what's so hard sometimes is to separate the kind of the social determinants of mental health from the potential <laughs> actual biological determinants of, of long COVID. So sorting that out is a challenge um, from a diagnostic standpoint. But I um, certainly have seen some folks with um, long COVID that have um, a treatment-resistant depression is probably the most common presentation. There, there have been reports of even more severe presentations, um, including psychosis and things that would be even more concerning. But um, the majority um, of the folks whom I have seen, it's been more of a treatment-resistant depression uh, picture. And again, <laughs> it is hard sometimes to separate that from you know, and it's particularly when you think about the employer, um, employee population, is it a, you know, a mother that's trying to manage three children at home with virtual schooling and her full-time job and how much of it's that <laughs> versus, versus sure. the long COVID. It's, uh, lots of social Great. stressors out there too right now. <laughs> Before we leave, anything that you'd like to leave our audience? You know, I, um, I just, I guess if I had to put a kind of a plug in for two things that I've kind of learned when I've been at, at Oak Street, it's, um, it, it's been wonderful in many ways when you're implementing a, a innovative model where you don't fit into that fee-for-service system. It's been wonderful to have that kind of upfront capitated full risk kind of model because it um, allows you to be creative and, and really feel like you can directly help patients without having to worry about how to build for it. <laughs> so that's one thing that if I had to kind of put a plug in for an overarching reimbursement model, that, that's been wonderful. And um, and then again, I, I'm a, um, a huge fan of this collaborative care model and um, and the the impact it not only has on the, the patient's health, but it really can have a a significant ROI as well when you when you think about not not only the cost that you're saving in external behavioral health costs or acute behavioral health admissions, but the amount of money that you're likely saving on med surge admissions that um, were prevented because you treated that depression, the patient um, did better with their metformin and and improved their diet and exercise. It's it's all highly interwound. <laughs> Right. Our guest today has been Justin Hunt, Chief Medical Officer for Behavioral Health at Oak Street Health. And Jason, uh, Justin, we sincerely appreciate your participation today. Thanks to everybody listening. And if you haven't been vaccinated, probably a good time to do it. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.